Should we stand? You want to stand? You're, I want to stand. It's, uh, She's wearing... not wearing heels. Yeah, she, I'm not wearing heels. She is. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Faculty of Horror podcasting from the horrid halls of the garrison. I'm Alex West with... Andrea Subasati. And... <laughs> I, holy shit. Thank you so much for coming out. This is wild. I, I, we were so scared to do a show like this in Toronto because we're like, who's gonna show up? We don't know who you are. We don't know where you're from. No, and, uh, you're all strangers to us, but yeah. we might all be friends by the end of this. I hope so. Now, has everyone done their homework? Has anyone not done their homework? Okay. A hand went up, and I'm sorry to tell you that you've only fucked yourself. Like, out of the. <laughs> we're gonna spoil the shit out of these movies. Yeah. Yeah, as we, most of us know. We've been doing it for 10 years, but um, it's so nice to be doing this as a hometown show. Um, we've always done this in Salem, so it's very, very special to us to get to do it here. Uh, is everyone kind of here like GTA-ish? Is there anyone here not GTA? Yell it out. Where are you from? Ottawa, yes. Nice. It's a, fuck yeah, Etobicoke. That was confident. Love it. Um, yeah, we're good. Still, what? Wonderful. Fuck yeah, Montreal, another province. Same way. Also Hamilton. Nice. It's a drive. Look at that. Yeah, yeah, I know that face. Um, but we want to thank everyone for coming out, and thank you so much for your donations. We raised over $2,000 for Sistering Drop-In Center, who do incredible work to support the communities that need it most. Everything you guys spent to uh, get your tickets tonight is going straight to them as soon as I recover from a hangover tomorrow. So Or the next day. But we round up with like 2,300-something, and we're... We're real fans of round numbers, so uh -huh. we're going to kick in a bit more between Andrew and I and get us to 2,500. 2,500 for sistering. So. Yeah. Thank you for that. Thank you for your generosity. But, um, okay, so you guys know what we're here to talk about. We're here to talk and redo our first episode. How, like, what a great idea, right? This was Alex's idea. And we were so scared to listen to that first episode. I was like, it's a great idea, but we're going to have to listen to it again. And so she proposed that we do it together. And let me tell you, we were white knuckle in that, what, uh, 20 minutes? We have, we have a tray of wine. I'm going to take one. Yes. There is a flight of wine that you can't see that we're going to be picking away at. Um, but before we get into these classic classic films that we need to readdress and reassess for ourselves. It's been 10 years, so Andrea and I have entered what I'd like to call our jigsaw phase. We're feeling real morose, we don't really trust any of you, and we want to play a game. <laughs> um, so we're going to do two games tonight, we're going to do the first one now, and it's all horror trivia. So we're going to ask for some volunteers. You can raise your hand, and this is going to be, we're going to do some questions about uh, films that have come out in the last 10 years. So if you feel confident, if you like, they're easy. They're easy. That's a category. That's what Ghostface said to Drew Barrymore. There are She's prizes. Fine. So here's how this is going to go. I am going to ask the question. You are going to put up your hand like the good little students that you are. You are not going to yell the answer and come out to the front. and ruin it. Who wants it? to do it? Put up your hand. Yes, you. You. Come on, come on! Yes, yes, come. Let's stand at the front. Two more, two more! 
In the back. In the back. Come on. One more. We got prizes. They're good prizes. Okay. Oh, we got two. They're really two. good prizes. Uh, prizes. Oh, perfect. Yeah. Okay. okay. So, prizing provided by Roomwork Magazine, Faculty of Horror. Jason. Justin. J oh. No, it's Justin. Justin. I know. I always screw them up too. Justin Edmondson. Justin. Erickson. Erickson. You're thinking of Jason Edmiston. I always do that, too. Anyway, you know great prizes to be run. Leave it all in. It's all in the audio. Oh, God damn it. They're both really talented. It's okay. Ready? So we're all going to listen. If you know the answer, raise your hand, and I will come to you with the mic. Yeah. So raise your hand. We're not taking shouties and no help from the audience. <laughs> we're all friends, but I don't take shit. This isn't the price is right. All right, you ready? Question the first. No one would have known it at the time, but this 2014 Australian film introduced the world to an unintentional queer icon. The Babadook. The well Babadook. Because I'm Baba Shook. No, do those at the end. Do those at the end. At the end. Okay. All right. Question the second. This horror film was one of the few to break through Academy stigma and win an Oscar for screenwriting. Get out. Correct. Yes. Ding, ding, ding. Correct. You guys are smart. You must listen to good podcasts. <laughs> Question the third. What film released in 2017 is the theater? <laughs> I wrote them too. theater so. degree at work right now. Uh, is the highest grossing horror film of all time. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Hint, it's else? not good. It? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it. Very good. Good job. <laughs> no one wants to clap. It's not like you're clapping for the movie. You're clapping for the right answer. That's right. Yeah, come on. I'm with you. Next question. What dramatic retailing, oh, sorry, dramatic retelling of a 1970s cult classic horror film inspired my Halloween costume in 2019. <laughs> no, Chris, no, you have to volunteer. Who got it? Yes. Suspiria? Yes, yes, <laughs> fuck yeah. It's great, scroll back on her Insta. This is how I manipulate people into following me on social media. <laughs> Last question of this round, guys, and great job, everyone. While the main character may have spent her time making miniatures, this film made a huge impact on horror films. Hereditary. Yes! I'll hail Paimon. All right, let's get you guys some prizes. Yeah. Do I put this down or in it's this? Sure we got prizes. That doesn't happen at home. Yeah, like that. Halloween. We're going to start with Halloween. And I'm just going to kick us off with a synopsis of the plot. You guys get to watch me read as this we do. As we do now. We didn't way back when. No. Um, no, actually, in the original episode, we did. I think, Andrea, what did you say? Say it. 
I said that giving a plot synopsis of a slasher film was like giving a recipe for cheese and pasta. It's not what my note card here says. It's really long. I wasn't on Twitter back then. No, <laughs> you weren't the editor of a horror magazine then. No. Okay. So here we go. On Halloween night in 1963, six-year-old Michael Myers murders his teenage sister Judith with, with a kitchen knife. Fifteen years later, on Halloween 1978, he breaks out of Smith's Grove Sanitarium, where he has been held. Michael's psychologist, Dr. Loomis, pursues Michael to his hometown of Haddonfield, Illinois, where Loomis is sure Michael will strike again. Can I, can I start? Yeah, 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 great. Um, three Haddonfield teens, Lori, Linda, and Annie, are preoccupied lining up their babysitting plans for Halloween and the upcoming homecoming dance, and only Lori notices the ongoing presence of Michael. The film comes to a head that night after Judith Meyer's headstone goes missing, and Michael murders Annie, Linda, and Linda's boyfriend, Bob. Lori is attacked by Michael, but fends him off and sends the two kids, Tommy and Lindsay, who are in her care, to go for help. Michael attacks Lori once again, and, ha um, and having seen Tommy and Lindsay running for help, Loomis arrives to save Lori. Loomis shoots Michael, who falls out the window. When Loomis looks for Michael's body, it has disappeared, motherfucker. So, Alex, how was it going back and watching this movie again? I mean, it's a classic. It is. It's perfect. It's beautiful. And I think this is a really good opportunity for us to kind of correct a lot of the things we said in that first episode. Because holy shit, were we hard on Halloween. I called it dour. I said the characters are insipid. <laughs> I, and now it's like my, fa of the major horror franchise, of those classic kind of three, Halloween is my favorite. Yeah. Uh, it, it's a great one. It's, it's challenging to go back after all the sequels and requels and new universes and especially sequels that, you know, kind of changed the plot and like retconned the first. It's hard to go back and give it a fair shake with fresh eyes. It's like, it's like trying to remember when you two were good. And it's so important because, like, we have gotten so much feedback oh over 10 years about that episode. So we just want to clarify a few things. Yes, Lori smokes pot. We know it. You can stop emailing us about it. It's fine. <laughs> Secondly, I think we really have to address some of the comments we made about the three female characters. So Lori, um, Annie, and Linda? Linda, Linda, yes, totally. Um, and we were really hard on them. And I don't, I, I wouldn't be as hard on them now maybe, but we kind of wanted to put it to you guys. And, and we used to use a lot of clips. We don't use them as much anymore, but we thought we could maybe just read a little bit of the dialogue and you guys can like have a bit of a say and you can help us decide where it ends. But Are you done? Yeah. <laughs> All right, fine. Um, but then we, we, did some, we did some math. And I'm one person, and Andrea is a second person, but there's three people in that scene. We're gonna need some help. We're gonna need some big fucking help. So we're actually calling up the big guns, and uh, we would like to invite our friend, actor, Chris Hayes, 
Come on, Chris. I feel like we should have prepared a highlight reel of all the times Alex has mentioned Chris on the show. Here. So we'll stand center stage, Chris. Um, so some of you may know Chris, if you're like a dedicated listener to the podcast, because um, Chris is a dear friend of mine, used to be my roommate, and when, I f when we were first living together, Chris was terrified of horror films. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> and now he's not. He's probably almost maybe a bigger horror fan than I am. I wouldn't say that. But you've excelled in so many ways, and we're so proud of you. I have, yes. <laughs> I've come a long way. So we're going to do a little reading. We're going to read that scene that we referenced in the first episode, and we're just going to do it live. So I'm going to play Linda. Chris is going to play Lori. <laughs> and Annie. Okay, here we go. It's totally insane. We have three cheers to learn in the morning, a game in the afternoon. I get my hair done at 5, and the dance starts at 8. I'll be totally wiped. I think you have too much to do tomorrow. Totally. <laughs> As usual, I don't have anything to do. It's your own fault, and I don't feel a bit sorry for you. Hey, Linda, Lori, <laughs> why didn't you wait for me? <laughs> we did, 15 minutes, and you totally never showed. That's not true. Here I am. What's wrong, Annie? You're not smiling. Never smiling again. Paul dragged me into the boys' locker room to tell me... Exploring uncharted territory? It's been totally charted. We just talked. Sure, sure. Old Jerko got caught throwing eggs and soaping windows. His parents grounded him for the weekend. He can't come over tonight. I thought you were babysitting tonight. The only reason she babysits is, ha is to have a place to... Shit! I have a place for that. Uh, I forgot my chemistry book. Who cares? I always forget my chemistry book and my math book and my English book and my French books. And well, who needs books anyway? <laughs> See. Thank you, Chris. Chris, take a prize back. Um, and Chris, we referenced recently in our uh, Strangers episode, he was my friend and former roommate who, uh, when I showed him The Strangers, stood on the couch and just pointed and screamed at the TV with like, his mouth open. Look at him now. He's come so far. I'm <laughs> proud of you. I think, um, you know, a lot of the female character and dialogue uh, is, you know, rightfully attributed to Deborah Hill. Deborah Hill focused on the uh, babysitter subplot while John Carpenter wrote the Loomis and Michael Myers stuff. And, you know, I, Halloween is an amazing film. It's maybe not the film that I would be like, you know what's great about it? The dialogue. <laughs> I will say I think some of the most effective uh, dialogue in the film is uh, between Lori and Tommy. Like it feels, you know, maternal, caring. They actually feel like two people talking to each other. But at the end of the day, it's really a film about like atmosphere and ideas. So the dialogue is kind of perfunctory in some ways. So, oh God, please don't take us to task about it for another 10 years. So 
Um, you know, I think that's important, and I think it's, you know, important. I actually want to defend this dialogue, if I may. Uh, Deborah Hill was 27 at the time, and she wanted to write, like, this film was made for teenagers. This film was made to speak to the female experience. And so Deborah Hill is a 27-year-old, and I'm thinking back to when I was 27 and when I was a teenager. And if 27 me were imitating teenager me, they wouldn't sound so smart. I just heard 40-something you imitate a 17-year-old, so that makes sense. I'm 40. <laughs> You're not a 40-something until you crest that zero, Alex. But I think it's also really important to acknowledge that uh, Halloween, as I'm sure many of you know, is an independent film. It remains one of the most profitable uh, independent films ever made. It became a sensation, and Deborah Hill is the producer on that. And I think people don't always know what to do with a producer and like not totally sure what their job is. And especially on small productions, they do a fucking lot. So I think it's also fair to like recognize she was behind the scenes pulling together things that normally wouldn't have happened to make it happen. And, uh, and I think her influence is so important because if you look at another film that John Carpenter did where the female characters are you know, good to decent, it's probably The Fog, which she also co-wrote. Um, and then you have things on the other end of the spectrum, like uh, to me, John Carpenter's masterpiece is probably The Thing. Famously, no women in that. Um, and also his nightmare vision of women in John Carpenter's Vampires. You guys seen that recently? I heard the collective cringe. Someone's yeah. seen it recently. But I also just want to shout out, before we like move away from Deborah Hill, uh, she was such a huge influence, uh, kind of quietly, like this workhorse in the industry. And you know, she worked on uh, so many films and some of my favorite films ever made, including Adventures in Babysitting, The Fisher King, The Dead Zone, and one of my all-time favorites, Clue. You love Clue, you love Deborah Hill. <laughs> yeah, we love Deborah Hill. A bit of a glaring omission from our first episode, yeah. but are we good? Can we move on? We're good? We feel good? I feel good. So, um, you want to talk? It's my turn to yeah. talk. Oh, yes. Okay. Uh, again, let's talk about Halloween. Let's talk about what it's like to watch it so many years later. And it's tricky because... I mean, this is a film that, you know, uh, not only was low budget, was a smash success due to word of mouth. It didn't have a huge marketing campaign. It is one of those beautiful lightning in a bottle success stories that gave rise to a whole subgenre on its own. So when we look at it now, you know, we can see the roots of what everything else became, but it's difficult to strip everything else out of it. And. Oh, with me now? No. No, great. This is me trying to remember. See, when we record in my <laughs> studio, I do this when I'm trying to remember stuff, and it's, uh, it doesn't work so much in the, uh, in, in the live And I've format. got the Pavlovian response to be like, ooh, it's my sipping time. You have a sip. So with any, as with any low-budget, high-concept horror movie, I'm looking at you, Night of the Living Dead. It's a concept that gets washed, rinsed, and repeated to the point where the original almost seems cliche in a way. And yet when I look back on Halloween, there's a certain purity about it. And I, I do think that we were 
way too hard on it 10 years ago. And, you know, at the same time, 10 years ago, we were pitting it against Black Christmas, which was a bit weird and confusing. But uh, both films are considered the prototypical slasher film. And insofar as they share a lot of those traits, they tackle them in really, really different ways. Now, when I think of the slasher subgenre, and again, we're gonna do a lot of defending that first episode around here, right? The cheese and crackers thing? Listen. <laughs> the slasher subgenre is one that always got up my ass because I felt like it was the subgenre that really got people saying that horror was sexist. And as a horror critic and a horror journalist coming up when I was coming up, I felt like I had to defend my love of horror against slasher fans. I had to do that a lot, and it really irked me. Um, but uh, this subgenre also really opened the door for deeper inquiry into gender and horror, which is our bread and butter now, not our cheese and crackers. Anyway, the central tropes of the slasher, slashing, obviously, but also the linking of sexuality with danger. Michael murdered his sister, presumably for choosing to bang her boyfriend instead of taking him trick-or-treating. Banging that boyfriend for like a hot five seconds. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, it's a lot of that in this film, but that's, that's for a different podcast. And it's not, just, it's not just about punishing these girls for having sex and seeking sex, but I feel like there's the implication that they're having sex when they're supposed to be taking care of the kids, which is such a lovely, perfect example of the virgin horror binary, isn't it? Um, subverting the role of mom in favor of premarital, se uh, premarital sex and then getting punished for it. Couldn't write that any better. No. Yeah, is it still me? <laughs> oh, oh, no, I can go to my thing. Oh yes, I, I also want to do. Uh, I also wanted to mention that horror of the '80s is typified for being aimed at a teen audience. This is primo date teen movie era. This is when you know MTV had shown the world that teens have dispensable income and are like a viable consumer market. And so this was very much a film made for teens. And so I think that when we look at Halloween and we discuss how you know all this problematic messaging, and is it indoctrinating our teens? Well, it was for our teens, you know? It's not like, it's not like it came from Hollywood on high to teach those kids a thing or two. I think everything that we take out of it is kind of what we put into it. Um, and there's so much tension, though. Like, there's tension between what teens want and what the people, like, adults at that time want and what they think of teens at the time. And those two are often at odds with each other, so you see that, that tension ongoing throughout the films. Oh, that's so cute. Yeah. I, on that note, would love to talk about a character who I don't often hear talked about very much when it comes to analysis of Halloween. And there is so much analysis about Halloween. Um, and that is one Miss Judith Myers. The sister, you know, mm. Mm. I did that to my cats when I thought of this too. <laughs> um, but of course, Judith, we only meet very briefly. Mr. Five Seconds gets out the door. She is stabbed, her breasts look amazing, and that's the end, that's the end. But I am fascinated, sorry, Chris, was that you? <laughs> <laughs> right? Anyway. Um, but uh, what I find so interesting about Judith Myers is that all of the Halloween mythology, and we've seen multiple filmmakers grapple with it, 
they always have to kind of tackle the Judith Myers question. Like that is the inciting incident. That's one of the few key pieces of information we actually know about Michael Myers because we don't ultimately know that much about him. And it got me thinking, in the last four or five years, it kind of kicked off with um, uh, the release of the first season of True Detective. Uh, there was some more discourse about it when uh, Twin Peaks The Return came about. But it's all about the trope of the beautiful dead girl and how we as a society are constantly fascinated with, you know, we expect women when they are put on a stage or in a pedestal or in a part of our content to be beautiful, to be a certain body type, to be white, able body, to look all of these certain ways. But when she gets too beautiful, when she gets too sexual, she has to be stopped. And so it's this real grappling with it. And a lot of people will trace it back to the original Twin Peaks, of course, Laura Palmer wrapped in plastic. But a lot of people can also trace it back all the way to fucking Ophelia in Hamlet. We are preoccupied with this tension between, like, when is she good wife material and then when is she a slut? And this is what I think this film has so much anxiety about. And um, there's this really interesting book. It came out in uh, 2018, and it's called Dead Girls, Essays on Surviving an American Obsession. And it's by Alice Boleyn. We'll link it in the show notes. Um, <laughs> and this is a quote from it. Uh, Dead Girls shows are notable for its two odd contradictory messages for women. The first is that girls are wild, vulnerable creatures who need to be protected from the power of their own sexualities. The other message is simpler. Trust no dad. Father figures and male authorities hold a sinister interest in controlling girls' bodies and therefore harming them. So I think there's an interesting application to put to Halloween. And again, it's, you know, we just came out and we'll talk about all of the requels and remakes and all this shit later on. But, it, you know, we just came out of the fall where it was like Halloween ends and all of this stuff. And then going back, you know, I know, I know, we're, we're <laughs> race we'll yourselves. We'll get there. We'll get there. <laughs> but, like, sitting down to watch this movie, there is so little we know about these characters. And, again, Michael. And it was like, what are the basic facts that we know? And it is that Michael is killing teen girls and Bob. And <laughs> I think that is just so interesting because at this time in the late 70s, we're kind of on the end of like second wave feminism. You know, we're using, uh, some of us are using the pill. Like we're actually having discourse about what the next steps in life are gonna be. It's, are you gonna be a mother or wife? And maybe not. This is like brand new portals for these young women to start to enter into. And it's the notion that sex and romance can be for pleasure and for fun. Um, and I think the interesting thing is that Again, we'll talk about the David Gordon Green shit later on, but there's so much anxiety about the Myers house, and ooh, look at that Myers house, and ooh! And I was like, I think the Myers house is kind of a red herring, because Loomis is like, I'm awaiting the Myers house. Guess who doesn't show up at the Myers house later on that night? Michael. Michael's off running around, and the second we really start to notice that things are gonna go awry is when Judith's, Judith's headstone goes missing. Where does the headstone wind up? It winds up over Annie's body. This shows that the women to Michael, in my opinion, are interchangeable, but that his rage at them is constant. And that is fucking scary because it is still something we are living with and grappling with today. Yeah, fucking nod at that. Boom. 
See, I love that you bring up the randomness of Michael's rampage, because I feel like in the first film, it very much was a random rampage. He went back to town, he found teens having sex, and he punished them the way he did his sister. I would say the one thing that maybe de-randomizes them a bit is they yell at him at the in the car right after the scene we read, and he was like, who are those bitches? And like, goes after mm. them. I think that's maybe the connective tissue, but look at how thin that is. And look how much, like, I think everyone here has experienced that kind of, like, tension where you want to yell, hey, speed kills, and then you get murdered later on. I clocked that scene on the rewatch, and I don't remember noticing it the first 100,000 times I saw it, but I, I, I remember how you know, they yell something, and then when he stops, you can see them all, like, their yeah. faces just drop, and they're fucking scared, and I've been there, you know, where, like, where you're in your cozy white suburban neighborhood and you think nothing can possibly happen to you and then you sass off a little bit and you're like, oh shit, I am not safe. I am not safe here. I am not safe anywhere. I'm not safe with my friends or alone or anything like that. And also, can I say, I had BDG in my notes <laughs> for beautiful dead girl and all I can <laughs> think of is big ditty goth and that doesn't make sense. <laughs> but I think it's important to note that um, Judith, Annie, Linda, and Bob die not because they are bad people, mm -hmm. but because they are preoccupied with this relatively new idea of sex for pleasure and dating for fun. If you look at when Michael strikes, it's like, I'm on a phone call, I'm doing this, I'm whatever, look at my tits, and we should be able to do that in safe consensual situations and not be murdered is basically the point mm -hmm. that I wanted to make. Just because you have beautiful tits does not mean you should die. <laughs> Big ditty girlfriend. <laughs> all right, well, let's take it back. Let's take it back to 1963. Oh, I'm excited for begin. this one. 1978. Let's talk about how teen sexuality was a real point of panic. I'm sure it still is to a certain extent, but this was, you know, the Manson family murders happened in 1969, and this is a time when suburban teens were outright rejecting, fuck that shit, I'm gonna go get my rocks off. And there are all kinds of problems inherent with that free love movement that wasn't quite as free and lovey as it uh, was cracked out to be. But um, traditional family values were shifting, and as usual, this was being blamed on young women not performing their cock-blocking duties. Yeah, free love is great, but you are the gatekeeper of sexuality. You are the one with the power yeah. to say no. You don't have any urges within you. That, that's not a thing. And again, for these girls to be taking on the maternal role of babysitting and then shirking those duties to party and then getting punished for that, it does have a very conservative bent. And so, as a response to second wave feminism, like you mentioned, se second wave feminism is typified as taking place between the 1960s and 80s, which basically expanded upon the first wave of feminism, uh, like, you know, the suffragettes. It's like, okay, we can vote now, but now we need to tackle the deeper institutional shit, uh, the deeper institutional mechanisms of sexism. Um, and then the third wave, which started in the 90s, had to do with riot girl, intersectionality, and the fourth wave, which I actually only learned about recently, uh, has to do with internet act, uh, activism oh, and, cool. uh, and mobilizing sexual harassment and assault, uh, the Me Too movement, and all that good stuff. And I couldn't help but notice, in re-watching the original Halloween, like, if I were to make a 90s feminist riot girl zine and I had to design a logo, it would probably have 
a knitting needle, and a coat hanger. Yeah? <laughs> Chris. I made Chris laugh. My work here is done. And actually, fun fact, um, before, before I landed on doing, uh, writing on zombies for my master's thesis, I wanted to write it on the revival of knitting in the domestic arts among, uh, among third wave feminists. You're like, I'm feminist, but I can do, I can do cool stuff because it's more about choice. And then, you know, brains. Just the takeaway from that is you could have all been at a knitting podcast right now. <laughs> it's not too late. It is too late. I have no time. <laughs> You're too busy. Can I get a... Yes, it's time for that. So, yeah, speaking about um, kind of second wave feminism and this teen panic and this question of where women were at this time, um, I, I want to talk about the year that this film begins in earnest, 1963. That's when the prologue happens. That's when six-year-old Michael kills uh, Judith. Um, and again, in all of the horror scholarship and literature that's talking about the importance of 1963, they all mention the JFK assassination. JFK assassination was incredibly shocking, destabilized not only the nation, but you could argue the world. <laughs> you seem very nonplussed by it. No biggie. <laughs> <laughs> but another major thing happened in 1963, and that was the release of one of the books that really kicked off second wave feminism, and that's Betty Friedan's The Feminine Mystique. May not be as sexy as a president getting shot, but it's so fucking important. Are you guys familiar? Do, hands up, Betty Friedan. Okay, okay, we got a mix, we got a mix, okay. So, uh, The Feminine Mystique is an over 500 page book. Very well written, very interesting, highly recommend it. Um, that at this time, they needed over 500 uh, pages to explain that women might not actually be happy uh, forced to stay at home as a wife, mother, and caring for your fucking house. They might actually have ideas and wants and needs outside of that. And it took 500 pages to actually lay that out, argue it, show examples. Again, brilliant book and is so important to the feminist movement. And that's, you know, at this same time when this comes out. So yes, there is a kind of, you know, bizarre panic about uh, this destabilization of the 60s and uh, the civil rights movement, like everything is kind of being upended. But again, if we look at who the victims are in this film, just solely within this kind of suburban bubble, it is this rage at uh, these young women who were um, just living their lives. And I think it kind of goes to our, our question that we, we've grappled with multiple times over this podcast, or like, are these films conservative? Oh, oh, you guys got real quiet on that one. <laughs> yeah, I think what's most interesting about that question is, <laughs> and uh, I don't know, I don't want to speak for you guys, but like, I don't want to like a conservative film. <laughs> it can't be conservative because it's good, and I like it. <laughs> you know? Yeah. But a film can have conservative messaging or conservative characters and still be subversive. Like the question that you have to ask is where is the finger being pointed? You, you know what, sorry, just a separate example. You know how everyone's like, oh, Martyrs is this like misogynistic film. Who out there is watching Martyrs and being like, cool, I wanna be part of that death cult. <laughs> no one, it's not misogynistic. Okay, Pascal Laguerre, separate story now. But <laughs> Martyrs, thumbs up. 
sorry. Yeah, sorry. Fuck yeah. Just big thumbs up. Don't be sorry. Don't ever. But it's be also sorry. like, who's like, oh, I want to be Patrick Bateman. <laughs> no, really, who? If you're out, if you get out, get out. <laughs> yeah, slowly. Don't wait for us outside. <laughs> but on the heels of that, and perhaps, perhaps this is the last mea culpa for episode one. I think we got to go back to Carol Clover. Good old Carol. I mean, this is all look. Andrea. I had nothing on Clover for this. So. Really? No, I was like, I don't know if I need to talk about her anymore. Okay. But no, no, go for it. You said I'm, what you need to say. Like, but like, I, I, I might respond. What? Are, oh, I, I hope so. But like, what are your what are your broad strokes? Oh, about Carol Clover? Uh, or maybe uh, I'll put it a different way. I felt like early in my career, my defensiveness about horror film always came down to Carol Clover and The Final Girl. I felt like she was so baked in to feminist inquiry of horror films that I almost felt like her proxy sometimes. Yeah, and just for anyone who doesn't maybe know, Carol Clover is the author of Men, Women, and Chainsaw. She did a lot of work defining the scholarship around what slashers are. Final girls, killers, terrible places, like all of the tropes. And then she put in a lot of Freudian analysis into it. But it was one of the first scholarship texts about horror films that I had ever encountered, and it was really provocative yes. to me. And it's still very foundational. It is. Uh, it started with an essay from 1987 called Her Body Himself, Gender in the Slasher Film, which, which I will link in the short show notes because I couldn't find my copy of the book. But the book came out in, uh, in 1992. So this is right on the cusp of the third wave. And, uh, and yeah, the value in it for me was that she typified the final girl. She um, elaborated on, on, on the, the links between violence and sexuality. And uh, very interestingly, she gave credit to... Um, a previously ignored female audience of slasher films. It's like, yeah, we're calling these sexist and we're assuming that everybody's, uh, you know, there to watch pretty girls get murdered, but women enjoy horror too. And it's like, oh, for fuck's sakes. What? 1992. We do? <laughs> anyway, um, but with regard to what you were saying, uh, my critiques of men, women, and chainsaws, in addition to the fact that because she was the only uh, mainstream feminist critique at the time. I felt like I was always, always talking about her, even when I didn't agree, and I didn't agree. I didn't agree with the Freudian shit. I didn't agree that, like, final girls become men when they don a penetrative weapon. Like, like, fuck off. Um, <laughs> like, that book had become something of a cross-eyed bear to quote Alanis Ooh, Morissette. look, I'm holding a glass. I'm a, I've got a phallic thing. Sometimes a glass Ooh, of wine. look at this mic in front of my wine. face. Ooh. They're objects. Sometimes a pipe is just a pipe. Freud is yeah, fucking bullshit. The, the, the arts major's got that one. I think she's better than that. But now looking back, and, and, and I wouldn't have been able to say this 10 years ago, but looking back, I think my biggest problem with some of the ideas put forth is that it deals in such a binary view of gender and power. Mm. Like if you're gonna ask, what power do these girls have, and does it do them any good against toxic, masculine, penetrative power? And like, Lori wasn't any kind of athlete. There wasn't anything that special about her. Look, I love Lori. I love Final Girls, but like, she likes books, but it's not like she used trigonometry to fight <laughs> off Michael. There was some resourcefulness, yes, but there was a good deal of luck and happenstance, and it's fine. Lori is supposed to be human, 
Michael is the superhuman one who seemingly can't be killed. And if her power is in persisting against the invincible, that to me is the definition of feminine power, mm. not masculine power. Ooh, I got chills. Ooh, <laughs> yes. Thanks, guys. She persisted, bitch. <laughs> so now, let's talk about the boys in this film. I'm excited to talk about Loomis. <laughs> Honestly, I think it's just, I mean, for those who know me, have listened to the podcast for a long time, you know, I was raised by a wacky, off-the-wall British dude. So really, Loomis is like my dad. Um, right? Peter has a certain Loomis-esque quality to him. He's not so hysterical. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah. But Loomis he's always got on my suspicious. fucking nerves on the rewatch, I'm not gonna lie. Every single time really? he said something, I was like, are you fucking kidding me? <sighs> You're a shitty doctor and a shittier person. <laughs> I kind of like, it just feels like this, he feels like such a transitional character because, you know, coming out of like, uh, again, we're, we're several years away from it at this point in 78, but like the hammer horrors and really Loomis is less a psychologist and more of a fucking Van Helsing. You know, he's not, you know, evil is not a diagnosis. <laughs> it's just not. And the thing is, it's like, Loomis is the only real character who could grant insight into Michael. He is the one who has spent the most time with him, has like done whatever with him and like kept him Nothing locked up. Looked at him. Like what insight does he provide? Well, none. And I think that's <laughs> <laughs> But I think you need that kind of you need like Loomis at his best is like Michael's hype man. Like, he's like, oh no, he's gonna kill everyone. Everybody's like, really, this guy? And he's like, but he will. You know, it's, it's spreaky. And, you know, I, you know I, I think the role of like psychologists and experts, it really transitions. And there's a really interesting book um, uh, called Monsters and Mad Scientists, A Cultural History of Horror Movies uh, by Andrew Tudor. And, you know, scientists were like hot property in the 1950s sci-fi horror. You know, you not only needed scientists to explain what the fuck was going on in a lot of these like Forbidden Planet-esque movies, they were often part of the solution. Now, one of the big changes that happened, it comes in 1960 with Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. And, you know, you, oh God, I'm gonna spoil Psycho. Is this gonna be a problem for any of you? Okay, I hear laughter, this is fine. Or plug your ears. Um, but literally, at the end of the film, you've got the psychologist coming in and giving this nice little monologue about what the fuck was wrong with Norman Bates. And Norman Bates is just like, mm, I'm a fly, I don't know, whatever. And, but it's so interesting because that analysis is context for us, the audience, to understand it, but it doesn't solve anything. It doesn't do anything. It just kind of gives a bit of a prompt and motivation. And, you know, Loomis has that certain quality as well. Um, you know, there is a, uh, a kind of notion that these elements that seem to trigger Michael, like festivities and young women, are just part of the new world order. And is there a certain kind of out of stepness that happens with not only Michael, but Loomis? Do you remember, uh, Stacy Ponder has a column in Rue Morgue magazine called Devils in the Details, where Woo! she fixates on like one little detail that drives her crazy about horror films. It's so good. And she was talking about this archetypal character in slasher films who 
like he's 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 the village lunatic or the village drunk and he comes out and he's like well that's the old house that this and that happened in and terrible things happened there and you disregard him because he's the the town drunk or he's the crazy the harbinger i feel like loomis yes he's michael's hype man and yet he's he's construed to be this expert this medical doctor this institutional authority but really he's hysterical really all he's doing is panicking. There's, sorry, there's this, uh, a quote from uh, Tudor from that book that describes Loomis as having a certain improbable conviction that I absolutely loved. I don't love that. That pisses me off. Because if that had been a female character, she would have been a hysterical, rabid witch. And like, But this guy has some credibility to him, and he does get people to listen to him. He kind of has this back and forth with that cop throughout where it's like, well... I'm not sure if I want to stay up all night with you and your crazy convictions, you weird little British man. <laughs> and he convinces him to. And and I, I think at, at one point they're even like, well, should we tell everyone to stay home? And he's like, no, that'll just cause panic. And it's like, well, what the fuck then? <laughs> what are you doing? You are both the shark in Jaws and the mayor. I don't know, he got on my nerves. Perfect character. (laughs) He is his protagonist and his antagonist. Give him a one-man show off-Broadway. Brilliant. Do you have more on Loomis? I mean, yeah. No, I don't. But if you you ever guys want to have me back, I can just be like, you know what's great about Loomis? (laughs) That time when he just yelled erratically at Paul Rudd, and then Paul Rudd was all like, whoa, and that's in Halloween, uh, Curse of Michael Myers, one of the greatest films ever made. Anyway. He sucks. Maybe we needed him to suck. I didn't realize I was going to hurt her with I really thought we were on the same page with Loomis. I love Loomis. Okay. I'm going to tell my dad you said that. I... No, no, I think, I th- listen, I get it. I get it. But we have to talk about the real evil. Evil. So... Can I take it away? Please. I found something called the privation therapy. That's fuck. Fuck. I fucked it up. Alan, no, you just take it again. You just created a new pronunciation. No. Where are you going? (laughs) I'm out of here. Don't encourage her. No, I love this. It's so charming now. I actually. I don't know how to pronounce that. Is that what is it? What is it? Privation or privation? Privation? I'd Tell say privation. It. Privation? The privation of evil? I don't know what it means. I don't know what that word means, but I know what the privation theory of evil is. And it is oh, the yeah, definition. Well, I'm going to explain it. Okay. Uh, <laughs> the definition of evil as the absence of good. And that definition, there's a surprising amount of scholarship on that particular definition of evil as a term in psychology as well as philosophy, criminology, and theology. And it argues that evil, unlike good, is insubstantial. And so it's not actually a very useful term in practical terms. And um, uh, the best way I could come up with to essentialize that is like, you know when you hear that the opposite of love isn't hate, it's indifference? Oh, yeah, that one stings. Yeah, so it's like the opposite, like evil is the absence of good. It isn't a thing in itself. It's the absence of another thing. Um, And that definition and and that subject gets all tangled up in some history-specific context where philosophers were trying to argue that the idea that 
evil doesn't exist because God would have created it and God can't create anything evil and blah, 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 and it's all stupid. Um, <laughs> but I think that when it comes to Michael Myers, there's actually some merit to that idea. Now, in legal terms, we know that a person is deemed what? Legally, Michael Myers is evil. There is a legal aspect to Michael Myers' evil because he's in an institution and he's I not incarcerated in jail. I'm so into this. Right. <laughs> I'm glad. <laughs> anyway, so at some point, somebody must have had to argue he didn't know what he was doing. He didn't know the difference between right Sorry. and wrong. Imagine Loomis on the stand. <laughs> I'll stop, I'll stop, I'll stop. But imagine, sir, can you provide any charts or any evidence to support your claim? No. His eyes! <laughs> Best Law and Order episode ever. <laughs> so to take it back to your point before, we really don't know a lot about Michael Myers. He was a kid when he killed his sister, and with the exception of the Rob Zombie remake, we don't get a lot of his life beforehand. We don't know if he was a weird kid, a normal kid, a smart kid, a stupid kid. And after he's captured, he's silent. He's expressionless, particularly when he's wearing his mask. He is blank. And if we conceive of evil as the absence of good, it's actually that blankness that is what disturbs us the most about him. He did a terrible, terrible thing, but since then he's done literally nothing. Nothing. <laughs> nothing to suggest he's sorry, nothing to suggest he's not sorry, just nothing. And what do human beings do when they encounter something they can't make sense of? They project onto it. They project onto it, and that is my theory as to how such a dull-ass killer has had 13 movies made about him. Good night. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck, I'm so sorry. I have things to add to that because that's so good. Okay, well, I just want to talk a little bit about the boogeyman. Because, you know, is that the boogeyman? Yes, it was. Okay. Um, again, Dr. Loomis, I would be his patient. Do you know what actually occurred to me when I was rewatching this? I was like, are they using the boogeyman as shorthand for Michael Myers? But it's the exact same amount of syllables. I feel like I need to try that again sober. Okay. Um, there we go. Uh, um, but I just wanted to go back to the term boogeyman because I was like, where the hell did this come from? We're throwing it around. I grew up with it. But the boogeyman truly just is a catch-all for fictional and folkloric monsters. It has been used for centuries all over the world in slightly different iterations, and it's primarily used by parents uh, to serve as a caution to their child. Like, don't get up in the middle of the night because the boogeyman will get you and not because mom and I are having fun. Like, that kind of thing. Like, do, do good things, child. Um, but there is a really interesting chapter I found called Recurrent Monsters, Why Freddie, Michael, and Jason Keep Coming Back by Paul Budra. And uh, he writes, oh God. In the 1960s, the most common threat horror movies have offered is the psychotic. That is, killers who walk among us, human monsters who are somehow a product of our own society, of the nuclear family, often indistinguishable from, our, from ourselves. The films suggest that we are the problem. 
So I think it's interesting that in so many ways, um, you know, that Michael is this thing that just feels so close to us and that we can kind of touch him and that we might even have known him as a kid. And then it's just gone into this really dark passage and that it is us and the idea is that it could be any of us and like it's very much the call is coming from inside the house mm -hmm. you know and, and then I think in, in when we talk about like that's really interesting you know um, you know evil is the absence of good but what's the like there's the saying of like uh, evil happens when good people do nothing something like that yes yeah okay and it's so interesting to me because throughout this film there are no fucking authority figures like where are the parents of these kids? Like the babysitting kids, we don't see them. Sure, it was tight budget, probably couldn't afford the actors, got it. Um, but like Loomis is all on his thing, Annie's father who's the sheriff uh, is off on you know doing whatever and they don't even suspect that their kids could be in danger. And to me, one of the most chilling scenes in Halloween is when Lori is in the street screaming and banging on doors for help and no one helps her. That to me is like, as a very privileged, white, cis, able-bodied woman, like, media told me you would help me. <laughs> what is happening? And so this is like the truly, like, it's so fucking dark. And, um, and it's, it's like really gets at this very primal fear that despite our modernity, despite all these things we've built up around us, we are all individually very, very vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Like, when I think of the boogeyman, I, I almost think, like, it almost has a folkloric, like, a vague urban legendness to it, but it, it is a vague catch-all term. It's, it's, it's whatever might be threatening in whatever context, and so, like, it, it, to pull it into a modern context of suburban kids being terrorized, we needed an evil like Mike Myers. Yeah, and I think if you just look at, again, as we're just doing right now, looking at Halloween 78, the idea of like this film being conservative, I don't think this film is conservative. I think Michael Myers is fucking conservative. And I think the ongoing franchise, which propagates certain ideals, which has become a tropey, funny thing to watch. Let me just say, opening of number five, when Michael's in the water and he's just bobbing along like he's in the log ride. Best sequence in film history. But other than that, like Michael Myers is the terrifying right wing Supreme Court boogeyman who wants to take away our rights, who wants to end our freedoms, and to want and wants us to go back to just being little incubators. That's right. And we're watching him do his thing, but we're also watching someone fight back. Yeah. And that is the thing, like that, if you go back to it, that original instinct of you're rooting for Lori and you're scared of Michael, I think that's correct. I think that's what the filmmakers want. And I think in this instance, it's, you know, a totally normal, progressive, interesting film. I agree. Is it time? <laughs> I'm getting my phone. Okay, okay. Uh, do we have any real Housewives fan in the crowd? <laughs> yes? Yes? That's it? She gets one minute. I, okay. So we all know Kyle Richards plays little Lindsay Wallace, and then she came back to play Lindsay Wallace in, in, in Halloween. Uh, my hand, time hasn't started. No, it hasn't. Shut up. Uh, it's, it's in Halloween ends and Halloween kills. Okay, tell me when I'm ready. Five, four. Oh, God, I'm standing up. I'm standing up. Go. 
Okay, so Kyle Richards, I have many, many really like problematic feelings about her and I'm really confused about her. So when you watch Real Housewives of Beverly Hills, which I have since 2010, Kyle is like she posits herself as the every woman and you're like, okay, yeah, you're the every woman, but you're also doing really shitty things to Lisa Vanderpump. So what the fuck is up with that and where's your loyalty? And then like Kyle is also grappling with her Kim's or her sister Kim's like dark addiction and it is so terrifying and sad. And then when Kathy shows up in the most recent seasons. Oh my God, it's so dark. Anyway, Kyle Richards is a Lynchian character. She is good, but she is cloaked in darkness. And I really wish that she would get free of those people and her family and just get to uh, be herself. Oh God, oh God. Okay, whew. And anyway, so I think Kyle Richards uh, is probably a really good person. She's really good in the Halloween Ends and Kills films. And I just wish really good things for her. Uh, and I think it's really hard to grow up with addiction and to be in the Two, uh, industry. and. One. Uh, oh. Wait, 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 wait. So I didn't listen to the bulk of that because I don't care. <laughs> but that you makes sense she was to anyone? really good in Kills and Ends? Yes! I, I thought maybe you were just delirious. No, no, so I literally was like, Andrea, if you do this, I get to talk about Kyle Richards from Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. And she was like, all right. And I was like, for five minutes. And she was like, and I was like, one minute, you can time me. <laughs> anyway, thank you, for thank you for indulging me. I am available to talk more about Real Housewives. Later. Also, we've heard Kyle Richards is very nice, so. Okay. I would die if I met her. Okay. Let's play another game. You want to play a game? Let's play another trivia game. And this round of trivia is going to be not just for you generalized horror nerds, but for you faculty of horror nerds. This uh, round two is called Return of the Fac, and these are all questions regarding previous episodes. So if you think you've got what it takes to compete, put up your hands. We need four. We can just take four for this one. Okay, you? Come on, we need three more on the side. Who wants to play on the side? Oh, okay, fine. <laughs> hey, three? Yes, we need one more. Oh, oh no! You were, you played, you played. You, yes, come. Oh shit! Well, we only have four prize packs, so we can Hunger Games this shit. Oh, Chris already has one. Okay, so you come up and yes, come. No, no, Chris can play. Chris can play. You just can't win anything. You can play. You just can't win anything. <laughs> Thanks, Jenny. Okay. Yeah, well, you know. They're protein. Yeah, I'm ready. Okay. You ready? All right. Ten years of fact. Let's do this. We're looking for film names. What film from 1994 did a recent Oscar winner get abs for to play an iconic horror character? Tonight. Yeah. What film from 1994 did a recent Oscar winner get abs for to play an iconic horror character? Close, you're very close. Sorry? No. 
Ooh, did I write a hard question? I might have written a very confusing question. Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Kenneth Branagh got abs to play Victor Frankenstein. You know those pale British people are so fucking stoked when they get abs. They're like, let's do the monster scene naked. We don't know that that's why he got abs. Why else? I think he got them from lifting Robert, Robert De, Niro. De Niro's slippery body out of that vat. Also, if you... Okay, next question. Wait. <laughs> yeah. That was kind of just a for me question. I wanted to make fun of Kenneth Branagh. Uh, anyone recently for um, that terrible political, non-political film he made that my parents love? Uh, Belfast. There we go. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. Um, name the three entries in George Romero's original Dead trilogy. Andrea, do pick. Your hand went up first. Night of the Living Dead. Dawn of the Dead. Day of the Dead. Fuck yes. <laughs> Ooh, this is a fun one. What Canadian film shocked audiences with its elaborate traps and deaths well before the torture porn movement? Cube? Yes. Good one. Nice. Bravo. What film is based on the Clive Barker short story, The Forbidden? Oh, no, I don't know. <laughs> I'm probably wrong. Candyman? Yes. Okay. Candyman, bravo. What Nightmare on Elm Street sequel features Freddy terrorizing a pool party? That's Freddy 2. Yes! Freddy's Revenge. Okay, then we have one last question, which we're going to use as a tiebreaker, but everyone's getting prizes. So, okay. <laughs> Andrea said this question was okay when I pitched it to her. Spell Andrea's last name. No. S U B I S A. We're so close. S U B I S I. Shit. S S U. S. Shut the fuck up. You said. Trying to remember what was wrong. S U B I S E? No, okay. You want to spell them for the nice people? S U B I S S A T I. Just to fuck with you. But say, hang on, we're going to give you guys prizes. Despite that. Just saying. No, no, it's very hard. I constantly misspelled it for years. And she doesn't know that. Big hand for our competitors. Yes, thank you, guys. And now, I hope whenever you see Kenneth Branagh, you think of that weird, like, two minutes when we all didn't know what to do with ourselves. And my weird question. All right. Second half. All right, let's do it. 
Should we make a pyramid with our energy? Sure. Oh, my. Oh, no, I put one back. It's a pyramid, Katrina, you remember? Uh, okay, come on. And then we'll smash it. No, we won't. They're plastic. The lovely bar staff told me that. They were like, we, s we know your type. <laughs> we, we give them the sippy cups. Wonderful bar staff, thank you so much. Yes, thank you. Big thank yes. you to the thank garrison you. for having us tonight on this historic event. When I went up to the bartender and I was like, we like to have a little tipple. And she was like, what's your choice? And I was like, wine. And she was like, would you like a tray of wine? And I was like, we just met and we're soulmates? How? What? Anyway, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I hope that gets picked up by the audio. I really, really do. All right. Are you ready to dive back? Yes. Into the deep, murky. I wore my choker. <laughs> Dip. All right, Black Christmas 1974. I'm going to give you a quick synopsis, a quick cheese and crackers, just to remind us of what we already know. The film opens with a POV shot of a sorority house decorated with Christmas lights as we mount an outdoor trellis and enter the house's attic. The occupants of the house are having a Christmas party before everyone disperses for the holidays. The festivities are interrupted by an obscene phone call that unnerves the girls, especially Claire, who gets chided by a drunken barb for being so sensitive. Yeah, she does. Claire goes up to bed, but is strangled by an attacker hiding in her room and brought up to the attic. When Claire fails to meet her dad the following day, the sorority girls grow concerned, especially since a local teen girl has gone missing in the area, and the police are initially dismissive. Meanwhile, Jess is dealing with some conflict of her own. She's pregnant, and her plan to terminate the pregnancy infuriates her boyfriend, Peter. Boo, Peter. Shame. Boo. When the teen girl's body turns up, the police agree to take Claire's disappearance and the crank calls more seriously. They tap the phone and put an officer on watch, but not before the intruder is able to murder the house's den mother. Eventually, Jess is the last one alive at the house, and the police inform, inform her that the obscene phone calls are coming from inside the house. They advise her to leave the house immediately, but she goes to check on her friends and winds up fleeing the attacker and hiding in the basement. When the police arrive, they find her in the basement with a dead Peter. Woo! Murder your <laughs> boyfriend! Murder your boyfriend! <coughs> Uh, who she presumably attacked in self-defense. Believing the ordeal to be over, the police leave Jess in the house, deeply sedated while the killer remains in the attic with the undiscovered bodies. And the film ends with an external shot of the house while the phone oh. rings. This film is so fucking good. And if you didn't do your homework, I'm not even sorry. <laughs> it's so good. I was actually, like, it, listening to our first episode, it was so, like, I am so feel so privileged that I got to introduce you to Black Christmas. Yeah. I feel so privileged by it. Yeah. It's such, like, we all love Black Christmas. <laughs> yes. Yes. And I think, you know, it, insofar as it, it provided some foundational elements of the slasher subgenre, it also subverts them in huge yeah 
huge ways. And I, like it's an incredibly watchable film. I think there's a really good reason why a lot of cities, Toronto included, screens it every single Christmas. Because it was shot in motherfucking Toronto! <laughs> We have so little as a culture here. Like, <laughs> don't say that. We have the non-knitting podcast and Black Christmas. That's it. Thank you. No. Down for both. God. All right. So, quick overview. I'm not sure if we actually went through this in uh, in our first episode where we weirdly tried to compare and contrast the two apples and oranges, but we'll get back to that later. I feel like most horror fans know this uh, this supposed origin story, but I can't recall if we touched on it or not. John Carpenter had consulted with Bob Clark about a sequel to Black Christmas that took place on a different holiday to attack a new slew of kids on a different holiday. And Clark was reportedly uninterested in doing it himself, and so gave Carpenter his blessing to make his own film along those lines. He made a couple of changes. We got Halloween. Um, and so, like, our original episode had positioned it as a debate. Like, I, I, I can't remember if the debate was which was superior or which was the original, like, I think like it was the OG which is slasher. the original slasher. Oh, okay. I've already blocked out that whole and Yeah, that, no, that's dumb. <laughs> we don't do debates like that. That is not an interesting debate to me. That is... Uh, yeah, like I said, apples, like they're, they're such different movies. And um, yeah, I, th I think we'll come back around to that when we kind of reflect on what faculty of horror was when we set out and then uh, what it became. But, uh, but I really don't think it's a comparison. I think they're, they both contributed to the subgenre in very different ways. Obviously, uh, Halloween was a much larger film. There's people still discovering Black Christmas to this day, but they both have their legacy and they both have really interesting parallel remakes that I'm looking forward to getting well, into. It's coming. It's, it's coming. coming. It's coming. Wait. But first, but first, I like we're starting every section with a bit of an errata of that first episode, and I feel like we need to start with the fact that we were comparing the girls of Haddonfield with the sorority girls of Black Christmas, and that's not Fair. High school girls and college girls. Okay. You know, we I feel like we talk a lot on the podcast about adolescence as as, as a turning point, as a um, you know, like uh, shedding off your innocence and learning about the world, but really that happens in a more a much more concentrated manner when you're in college. And and, and further, what I think of when I think of the Haddonfield girls and their dismissal of academia, you know, I, I kind of think of the time and I think of what options were available to women. Whereas in Black Christmas, if you're attending university, it's because you've got plans. It's yeah. because you've got money, it's because you've got privilege, and it's because you've got plans. And so I feel like all of these things are just, those aren't things that we considered in our first discussion and mea culpa. Yes. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, I appreciate that. <laughs> there was a slight, there was an attempt at an applause, but it's fine. No, it's fine. We're good. We're good. <laughs> I love this. Oh my God, we can just bully you all into validation. We truly are friends. <laughs> um, <laughs> I love how my side over there got, like, my friends just all went. <laughs> I think that's fucking your side. That's our side. I, they're fr my friends, too. 
This is why we haven't gotten married. <laughs> Nobody knows where to sit. Um, shall I, or am I, am I, um, there? I can't read your writing, so oh. I'm not sure that I'm right. Uh, I think I had some more to say oh, on no, sorority ahead, culture, but yeah, my please. notes aren't in order anymore. Anyone here in a sorority? <gasps> Because from what I no, you're all weirdos that. like us. Don't Fuck be embarrassed. Yeah. Don't be ashamed. It's cool. Um, I, I was doing research on it, and like, look, I totally get it. When I entered university from high school, I was a, I think it was the loneliest I've ever been in my life. And insofar as I, uh, are you laughing Jesus at that? Christ. Listen, I went through a real weird period when I started at Concordia, and it wasn't until like the last day of classes on my first year that I met my friend Joanne over there, who was outside smoking, and then we all just started making fun of people. We weren't friends with those people, but then we became friends. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. And we're still friends to this day. Um, okay. All I wanted to say was that the fraternity was originally an organization for students to get together and disperse ideas outside of the classroom setting. And that is because once upon a time, the curriculum was so restrictive that students were like, I want to talk about the naughty shit. I want to talk about this leaflet I got on the street. I want to talk about this Nietzsche guy I've been hearing about. And like stuff that wasn't offered in the curriculum, fraternity, like they would talk about them like within themselves. And, and they were, they were self-organized and self Were they like podcasts? <laughs> uh, sort of? Anyway, it, it was mostly like a, an endeavor for, few, uh, for, for camaraderie, but also for higher learning. And uh, the emergence of the chapter house came about as these groups needed space to meet up and as a way to pay to keep and maintain these spaces, they'd throw parties and fundraisers, and then obviously the culture has gone completely AWOL since then, and it's a shadow of its former self. And now the emphasis is mostly social. The fraternity or the so uh, sorority offers a built-in network uh, for support, and particularly for women on campus. And I, I, I think this is an important topic that we glossed over in the first episode, is that mm. The university campus is a fucking, I don't know how I want to say this. I don't want to call it a cesspool of sexual, sexual assault. I don't want to call it a, a, a breeding ground for sexual assault, but holy shit, did I not understand sexual assault until I went to university. And uh, there was a rash of sexual assault when I was attending university to the point where, you know, there was all this discourse about don't go to the library late at night. Yeah. And it was like, but I need to fucking study. And this, uh, you know, that was, um, I don't want to say what year that was, but like just <laughs> not that long ago. Well, I, yeah, and I, I kind of, um, it was interesting. I started thinking like, oh, I just want to research a little bit about just women in university and in higher education. And then if I'm good to go into this. Well, I guess I just wanted to mention that like the third wave feminist movement 
emerged out of campus culture and largely awesome. out of sorority culture, out of, out, of, out of women meeting up and sharing their experiences and agreeing to support one another and agreeing to walk each other home, even though it's bullshit that they should have to. But it's also like um, when we met our, uh, well, we kind of knew our friend Allison, who is somewhere. Hi. Hi. Um, uh, but we went on the slut walk uh, together. Mm -hmm you know, with a few other people. And um, it was just like, it, because this policeman at York University had basically given the advice that when sexual assaults were happening on campus here in Toronto, just don't be a slut. Ser no, seriously, that you look it up, it's in the fucking news. And we marched to just be like, no, no. Yeah. No. Yeah. <laughs> no, it, it's, it, it's super fucked up and, and, and Riot Girl emerged out of out of, out of sorority culture, and I, I I think that's that's a product of privilege, but also like you know you're learning about women's studies, you're learning about women's issues, you're interacting with other women in the same stage, and you actually have the time and energy and idealism it takes to dream that this can be better and this can be fixed, and we need to do something about it, you know, before the world beats us beats all that out of us. And so now when I look at Black Christmas and I reflect on my uh, university experience, it doesn't surprise me what overt feminism is happening at that level, but it also kind of shames me that I was comparing it to fucking high school students. Yes, I'm, I'm getting my other one. Uh, well, okay. <laughs> Is she beating me? Is anyone keeping score? Yes, I'm. I'm. <laughs> Listen, I know a bunch of people over there who are already outpacing me. So, <laughs> well, I no, it's 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 like very, it's very prescient. If you've ever been on like a uni university campus and attended university, it's suddenly like this whole new level of being an adult. You're not quite an adult, but you're far more of an adult than you were when uh, you were in high school. And again, high school was kind of created, as we've talked about on the podcast, and I've learned from Andrea, as that interstitial space when they were like, we can't work kids on the farm anymore, so we have to get them to do something to like make them do shit. Um, and then, so I was like, oh, I'm gonna look into a little bit of um, the history of women attending higher education, just as a like one-off, just as a little like, Wonder what happened, and the shit. Maybe it'll be inspiring. The shit I found. I want you all to buckle up. No, it's, it's, I'm gonna explain things, and then and it's gonna get dark. Is there a drinking game? For you, there should be. Um, okay, so in the U.S. and multiple other parts of the world, uh, women were not uh, permitted to attend university until the 19th century. Uh, and universities and colleges in the States had been open for at least 300 years before that. So in, or sorry, in 1837, Oberlin College was one of the first colleges to allow women to attend classes. However, that's it, uh, those women were dismissed from classes on Monday to do male students' laundries. Yes. Drink your pain away, Andrea. It's only gonna get worse. Oh. 
But then there were things like when um, Harvard was around and they, they were one of the oldest schools in the States and they were like, oh, the women, they want to be educated. They would create like sister universities and colleges. So they created something called the Harvard Annex where women could go to be educated, where they could kind of be shunted off. And it wasn't... So they couldn't distract the men we're getting with their to ankles. It. We're fucking about to get to it. Okay. It was not until the 1960s and 70s that women were allowed to attend Ivy League schools. So, I really, okay, okay. Reports from Dartmouth say that in the 1970s, banners were unfurled from windows of students' dorms that read, better dead than co-ed. What? <laughs> Oh, it's, gonna, it's about to get real worse. In the 1970s, one, and I'm gonna, we're putting this in the show notes, it's all cited. Calm yourselves down. Okay. Um, in the 1970s, one alumnus wrote, what is all this nonsense about admitting women to Princeton? A good old-fashioned whorehouse would be considerably more efficient and much, much cheaper. Yes, yeah. A Yale alumnus worried that male undergraduates would be overwhelmed with all the, quote, idiotic trivia that women tried to impose on them. It was the current, and in the 1970s, current and incoming students and faculty that pushed for this change, that demanded change, and that made change happen, allowing women and men to study together. So, the last holdout of these Ivy League schools to allow women to attend was Columbia University in New York City. Does anyone know or want to hazard a guess as to what year women were allowed to attend? No. Come on. 81. What? 1983, that's it. We have no prize for you except the pain of misogyny. <laughs> and I say that only because there is such an odd tension in Black Christmas. There is this, like, again, the propriety that Peter has over Jess and, like, these men, these few men in, like, the school around them seem to just kind of be, like, you women want to do this thing with these kids? You, you don't want to have this baby? What the fuck? And they want to open whorehouses in the 1970s. Like, this, this was so much of, like, the alumnus and part of the student body dialogue that was happening at that time. Better dead than co-ed? Go fuck yourself. What is that? That's terrifying. This happened within people's lifetimes. I know, we're all just nodding now. It's terrible. <laughs> we love oppression? Great. <laughs> but yeah, no, I think like sororities became really important because sororities alongside frats were one of the few places that women students could actually socialize with each other because there were still a lot of clubs and teams and sports and things like that that they could not participate in. So to get to have like, oh, we're going to go live in a house and we're going to do stuff together and I'm going to get to have a life outside of my family home is still like a really big deal at this point and it's really important to them. One of the um, interesting things that I learned was that in the uh, early years of universities and higher education was that um, 
that uh, universities really frowned upon fraternities and sororities. It wasn't until the 20th century when enrollment really like went through the roof and they were like, oh, we can't afford to build student housing. Hi, sororities and fraternities who like bought houses and shit, can they? So that's how they came to be ingratiated within the academic campus life. Now, one of the few things to differentiate like properly a fraternity from a sorority is fraternities are generally pretty much self-run, whereas sororities almost always have a house mother. And what a house mother is Mrs. Oh. Mack. <laughs> I just, so Alex has a little surprise, a la Ms. Uh, Mack, and, 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 and while she's getting that, oh. I have never drunk sherry. I've never, I've only smelled, I bought this today. I'm gonna smell again. I yeah, salivated. It smells like cough syrup and candy. We're gonna try it. So I have a shot glass. I have a Michael Myers have a knife day shot glass. From Halloween, it's branded Halloween Resurrection. I just wanna sip. I just wanna sip. Do you, I'm gonna pour a little shot for me and you wanna sip from the bottle? No, I wanna sip from the shot glass. Okay, well, each and sip if from I the like shot glass. it, and I'm feeling the Miss Mac energy, I will swig from the bottle with Christmas cheer. Okay. Here, I'll do this. That's not bad. No. It's, it's very really not bad. sweet. Yeah, the fortified wine, I taste it, but it's also a very sweet. Like that the cough syrup flavor is not. It's like a Popsicle cough syrup. <laughs> That's nice. Yes. That's nice. Yeah. I'm feeling a little we bit revived by it. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> All this talk about, about the fraternity. But anyway, like getting back to the sorority, it's, it's, it's a very unique context these are women who like it, it's almost chosen family but it's almost not it's like it's roommates you didn't choose but you also have a certain sense of loyalty to them you also have a certain sense of sisterhood and i feel like we see that manifested in black christmas particularly between barb and claire you know mm. they pick on each other but you know they care about each other um, there's a lot of empathy toward Barb when her family ditches her for the holidays and, and there's, you know, like, fuck our plans with our boyfriends, we have to be sisters, we have to, and I think, I, there's so much of this film that is shocking to see of a film of its time. And there are so many feminist films that like rock your socks, but that was the very first that I was kind of like, this is something special. These girls are here for each other and it shouldn't feel as, remarkable as it does. No, it's still like, it's a very unparalleled film in so many ways. It feels so like the breadth of just people relating to each other and being there for each other and supporting each other and caring about them. <laughs> That's nice. I love it. 
One of my favorite things is when my beautiful goth princess Andrea says, that's nice. I already knew I was on Miss McHenry's path. Yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness. Okay, are we gonna talk about her? Let's talk yes, about her. Yes, please. Let's talk about her. So let's talk about how Claire's dad shows up at the house and is so appalled at all the sex positive art in the sorority house. Let's talk about how judgy he is about Mrs. McHenry, about being such a poor role model for the girls. She's here to learn. She's not here to party and get her rocks off, to which she is like, literally, fuck <laughs> off. And it's, on the one hand, watching this film, I felt like she was comedy relief and a little bit of a spinster archetype. But at the same time, the way she sticks up for these girls against Claire's dad makes her such a hero to me and such an endearing and important character in this narrative. I also think it's really interesting that role of the spinster in this case because she says, you know, to, um, uh, to Andrea Martin at one point, like, oh, I might not be back. Uh, I might not be here when you get back because I'm going to my sister's. So no one knows that she has been murdered even at the end of the film. Yeah, they've like, she is an independent woman doing her own thing, no attachments other than this house. And she says, I'm going to my sister's and she's not there when they get home. It's like, oh, she yeah. went to her sister's. It's this weird thing of like the way we attach people to certain other people um, that we have to have these people to care for us. And it's, you know, really Someone tricky. out there is wasted. Are you hearing these hiccups? <laughs> no, she is Mrs. McHenry, so we can assume that she's either a widow or divorced, but she has a cat. I think she divorced and then murdered her ex. <laughs> the goal we all aspire to. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm so sorry. I saw some men in the audience look real uncomfortable there. <laughs> <laughs> but yes. Um, she's still cast like. It, She's interesting to me because the second wave feminist spinster is presumably one who has eschewed the role of nurturer, and then here she is as den mother. And like again, we don't know. We don't know enough. We don't know the yeah. circumstances. Did she own the house? It's an old house. And like my understanding is that uh, campus houses belong to the campus and then are run by the sororities or it's fraternities. It's changed over time, but essentially, yeah, they've yeah. had to buy into the university structure. So, like, if we read the film as having some indictment of second wave feminism in the, in, in the same way that we were just discussing the Halloween films, Mrs. McHenry's unconventional lifestyle comes under some scrutiny, but she's far too lovable to reproach. And the stuff that, um, that Claire's father takes issue with is so harmless. Like those pictures of the old lady flipping off the bird. Delightful. If that pisses you off, you need to look in the mirror. <laughs> All right, what do you want to talk about? Uh, well, I think we should also just briefly touch on Mr. Harrison, Clara's father. Like, he is um, of the older generation already. Andrea mentioned he's uncomfortable with the things that are going on in his daughter's life. But he's concerned and effectual, but only to a point. And then if we look at it, the other kind of what I would call the third authority figure 
in the film, which is Lieutenant Fuller, John Saxon. Daddy. Yes. Yeah, you, yes. In, like, Lieutenant Fuller, okay, firstly, you know, a cab, but um, he is, as soon as he becomes aware of the issue, he is trying to make a difference. He is trying to problem solve. He's trying to. Sorry, how does he become aware of the issue? When Mr. Harrison and uh, Claire's boyfriend make a stink. Claire's boyfriend comes in, rah, 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 in my big fur coat. That's allyship. <laughs> that's how they get a, the attention of the lieutenant, and that's when things. Sorry, go on. No, no, the men have to come in and make a big stink about it. We'll talk about this, but they make a big stink, and then as soon as Lieutenant Fuller is like, "Wait, what the fuck, Nash?" Like, no, this is a big deal. If we have to connect the dots and we have to make things happen. However, Lieutenant Fuller is dependent on his shitty desk sergeant to make things happen. So, <laughs> it just really scared me how Chris waved at us like he was going to do something. I liked it. No, he's not. Don't be no? scared. Oh God. Have some sherry. Um. <laughs> But I think it's really interesting because ultimately we have three authority figures who are <laughs> very well intentioned um, and they have like decent interests at heart. They're not bad people. They are good people within their own spheres and they are trying to help as the situation progresses, but they are so pocketed in these own regions and they don't overlap. So there is no safety net for these young women as they navigate this new world that they are entering into. They only have pockets of safety and the only way they can get to those pockets of safety is if they have access through very specific means, whether it's boyfriends, fathers making inroads at the police, whether it's you know Mrs. Matt getting her attention, whether it's being the daughter of one of them. I think Black Christmas is fascinating. <laughs> when I was in university... It's strangely delightful. Right? <laughs> Can I have some more? Yes. <laughs> when That's I was $17 in university, I ever spent for this podcast. 17 bucks. Oh, I spilled it. Yep. <laughs> you did spill it. When I was in university, campus, so the campus had its own security. Oh, yeah. You didn't call the police from yeah. campus. You called campus security. And the assumption was that they were on the job, on call, monitoring the premises. If the library was open late, they were on call late. And, uh, and that really wasn't the case. And... So when I watch Black Christmas, I'm, I'm already kind of like, wow, they're dealing directly with the police, but are they? They're dealing with this weird layer of the police. Um, you know, the guy that they're dealing with on the counter is clearly an fucking idiot. Nash. And <laughs> fucking Nash. But can we talk about the way Barb fucks with Nash? Yes. It's a new extension. Look, <laughs> the fellatio thing is so fucking funny. But when I step back from the film and I look about, did she impede justice? Did he, well, no, listen. Like, we have to kind of, like, what went wrong here? If we're going to talk about authority figures being ineffectual, giving the authority the wrong information is a thing. But at the same time, ACAB. <laughs> it all boils down to ACAB, I'm sorry to say. Uh, you know her playfulness 
uh, fucking with them made him the laughing star. And it didn't impede justice. The only thing that impeded justice was incompetence and dismissiveness of something that was was very serious and like egregious. Like I, I find it oddly heartwarming at how the sorority girls come together. They're dealing with the disappearance of Claire. They're dealing with obscene phone calls, but a teen girl has gone missing and there's a search party and it's frigid fucking cold out, but we're gonna go. And <laughs> I think for those of us Canadians living in these temperatures, you're like, oh shit. They went out there to look for this girl, to walk, they froze their fucking asses over the holidays. There's like some serious community there that uh, circumvents um, the authority figures who weren't able to pull their weight. No, absolutely. And it's like if you look at um, this kind of new family structure that is emerging, and we still talk about it, like the way we get to choose our family. We get to, uh, hopefully most of us, get to choose the like blood family we still have contact with, and then the people we let closest into us. Like some of my closest friends who are here tonight, thank you, one of whom I do the podcast with, thank you. Like they are chosen family. They are the people, ride or die, I would lose my life for. But like to look back at the 1970s and look at this new world that as a young woman they're about to enter into, like if we consider not only there's now the presence of co-ed education, which apparently to some people is very problematic, um, the emergence of second wave feminism, which people are still processing, it's like not, there's no internet, there's no nothing. It's like you're finding it out. It's much, much more grassroots. Uh, the pill, the pill. And then, of course, something which I never ever thought in my life we would be talking about is the lack of abortion rights in the fucking power, most powerful nation in the, in the world. The overturning of Roe v. Wade is one of the most fucked up things that I would have never ever fucking predicted when we started this podcast. And it's important to remember that when we talk about Roe v. Wade, Roe v. Wade came into law in 1973, a year before this film came out. So when Jess, and when people are like, why does Jess go to Peter and he's like, I'm gonna have an abortion because this is the first fucking legal time she can say, I am having an abortion and you have to know about it, and I'm not gonna fuck with you anymore. And it is so fucking badass. She's wearing a beret. She gives no shits. Yes! May we all be that badass! But it is so, so fucking badass. And like, I, I challenge you to come out with like a horror film title since that engages with this topic so directly, they say abortion. so fearlessly, they say the word abortion, not termination. Yeah, no, 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 no. There's, there's no pussy footing. There is, I'm going to do this. I want this. I didn't think about. I considered not telling you. I don't want to marry you because I have plans for myself. <gasps> yes. <laughs> it's 2022. That shit shouldn't give me chills, but that was in a movie from a long ass time ago. That our government funded, thank you. And we haven't, I have not seen yes. the likes of it since. No. It's shocking, it's shocking and astonishing that, like, that, that the A word comes out the way it did, that toxic masculinity is depicted in the way it did. 10 years ago, we said that this film was ahead of its time. It hasn't 
become any less it is true. Shockingly, somehow more ahead of its time because our time has regressed. Uh, fuck, you're right. <laughs> yeah, I know, I just keep. I've got more sherry. <laughs> But no, there is this kind of like fallacy of the family structure at this point. Like Barb's family structure is unsupportive slash inconsistent. Claire keeps her fa- her life private from her family. Jess has no fucking intention of starting a family with Peter. And then whatever the fuck is going on with Billy and Agnes, I don't know. It seems real fucking traumatic. <laughs> but that's another weird family I want no part of. Um, And I think it's important to talk about the multiple instances of violence against women in this film. Um, So uh, there is the emotional abuse from Peter. There are the phone calls and murders in the sorority house. There is the- And a rape. What? And a rape. Well, I'm getting there. Uh, There is the murder of the 13-year-old girl in the park. There is the rape of the local girl. And it is unclear whether those last three things are connected. Do we think those last three things are connected? I, I don't. No. That's, that's just what it is. It's a fact of life. Just like those Haddonfield girls who were like, oh, and we sassed back at that car. <laughs> we might get killed over it. Whoops. And even Barb remarking after one of the early phone calls, this is a minor league. I get two of those a day in the city. Like, we just, it's, it's this tantamount, like, depiction of the, uh, the amount of violence and abuse that people have been coerced into accepting because it is more socially acceptable to accept it rather than be like, what the fuck is going on? What are we doing that this is okay? And I think it's terrible. I feel like Barb is, uh, I, I feel like humor and satire is kind of a response to the discomfort mm-hmm. of her situation. like. Barb is an interesting character in that, exactly. Barb is already displacing a lot of emotional hurt with alcohol and shit over the holidays, and God, I can relate. And so when she makes remarks, like the one that you mentioned, like you can't rape a townie, I don't think it's that she doesn't believe, I don't think it's that she thinks that's the case. I think she thinks that laughing about it is the only way to get through it. Well, it minimizes it. And this is one of the many things we have done to ourselves to socialize this socially acceptable violence. Now, um, can I go into my gift of fear a bit? Please. So, not to brag, this book was recommended to me by my student subsidized therapist that I went to in grad school to get out of an abusive relationship. And it's called The Gift of Fear by Gavin DeBecker. And <laughs> it is. I don't know why that's funny. But um, but a couple interesting things I learned, and I read this book um, back in like 2007, no, 2009, 2010. Uh, really interesting book. And a couple things I learned about DeBecker, which I thought we would all appreciate uh, just in researching this episode. DeBecker has been romantically linked to Alanis Morissette and Gina Davis. He has given eulogies at Carrie Fisher and Gary Shanley's funerals. Right? Anyway, I'm impressed. Right? I'm jealous. Fingers crossed. He seems like a cool dude. Um, but point being, anyway, he is an author and security specialist. 
Anyway, the book focuses on interpersonal violence and how we intrinsically have the ability to predict, to predict danger and potentially save ourselves from it. So one of the, yes, I've thrown my papers down there, Andrea. Let me, let me just talk about this, okay. They don't know, but the funny thing is, at home, in the podcasting studio, I'm the one who does that. But I'm not doing it tonight, because I'm not home, but she's doing it. It's the night we came home, bitches. Okay. So, uh, this is a quote from DeBecker's book right at the beginning, where he talks about how we are socialized out of trusting our intuition or gut instincts. It may be hard to accept its importance because intuition is usually looked upon uh, by us thoughtful Western beings with contempt. It is often described as emotional or unreasonable or inexplicable. Husbands chide their wives about, quote, feminine intuition and don't take it seriously. If intuition is used by a woman to explain some choice she made or a concern she can't let go of, men roll their eyes and write it off. We much prefer logic, the grounded, explainable, unemotional thought process that ends in a supportable conclusion. Now, listen, uh, <laughs> we have been like socialized to just say like, oh, he just likes you. That boy just pushed you over because he likes you. We have internalized all of this bullshit that has kept, that is meant to be like, oh, it's attention, they like you, when actually it's fucking danger. And we need to be more and more aware of it. And you know, it's, it's about like the kind of status that certain people yield that we let go of and we are supposed to let our guard down. And I think it's so interesting in the film, like. Claire, like when Claire goes missing, when they first realize it, they're to the police. And they're like, fucking help us, our friend is missing. He's like, probably in a cabin with her boyfriend. Jess is like, I'm getting really fucked up calls. He's like, probably boyfriend playing a prank on you. <laughs> what the fuck? No, it's so messed up. And then DeBecker also goes on, again, it's a really, like, it's an in-depth book. If you're interested, recommend checking it out for yourselves. But he talks about these things called survival signals that if you're in, in a situation where a few of these things happen, you might want to start to extricate yourself from it. So these are a few of the signals. Forced teaming, i.e. we're in the same boat, we're in the situation together. Charm and niceness. Interestingly, DeBecker calls these characteristics and not character traits. They're part of a manipulation. Offering too many details. Typecasting, i.e. the pickup artist put down. Um, loan sharking, helping you to own me, uh, unsolicited promises, and discounting the word no. I'd say our, you know, terrible boyfriend Peter in this film checkmarks a whole fucking bunch of those. Tick, tick, tickety, tick. Anyway. I also I noticed, I, I remember being struck on the rewatch of Black Christmas that when, when they put the obscene collar on the speaker and they're all listening and they're all experiencing that together. There's a really collective shared dread that reminded me of the collective shared dread of when Michael Myers stopped the car yeah. after the speed kills. And there's a weird understanding that is shared among women when they're like, we're not safe right now, all of us together. And it's something that we all understand intrinsically and that someone external to the situation might not understand, that we're always in danger, but we're always kind of walking that tight line. And if we step over, as per answering that phone, as to yelling out to that car, 
we're transgressing in, in, into the danger zone. And, um, and yeah, that silent acquiesce, acquiescence of that understanding is so, so chilling to me. And uh, it was interesting to me to note it in both films well, upon I, the rewatch that I didn't. And I think didn't. it's so important that when we look at like the sorority house, it's become the safe haven for these girls. This is like their first time often away from home. They get to be with each other. They get to experience things. They get to drink. They get to shit talk. They get to smoke. All of the things we want to do. S some of us right now. But um, <laughs> you good? Do you need more? Um, but um, what's interesting to me is part of this plot device of Christmas is like we kind of see like that opening Christmas party and then the girls start to kind of peel off. They've got, you know, we're going home to families, we're going home to this, and then we've got this, you know, quote unquote, orphan's Christmas happening. So suddenly through this lack of women being there, it becomes an unsafe space. The more isolated they become, the more unsafe it becomes. So this place, which is meant to be a respite, from the horrors of the world and the one place you get to be yourself in maybe or a version of yourself suddenly is like, oh, there is a fucking murderer in the attic and we haven't even processed that yet. Undiscovered bodies all the way to the end. And look, if this discussion of this film is sounding kind of dour, it's because this film is fucking... What? It's fucking dark. And I was, I, I was talking to Joe when we were outside and she was like, one of these films is kind of a comedy. And I said, yeah, and yet it's the scarier one. And like Black Christmas has a lot of comedy beats and yet the sense of dread that it leaves you with and the gravity of the topics it discusses is like, is tremendous. It takes a lot out of you. There's a, there's a reason why Halloween is kind of a feel good horror movie and Black Christmas is not. I love murdering my sister, yay. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I feel like we need to. Can I talk about sound design? Punch up the energy. So let's talk about sound design. <laughs> Come on, don't be like that. Okay, sound design. Throw cool, your notes edgy at me. sound in film, still relatively new, maybe a hundred years old. We don't know. Um, <laughs> did anyone <laughs> like <laughs> Sherry? Um, Oh, I saw someone stand up. I got very excited for a second. Nope, she's going for, nope, you're going for another drink. It's fine, do you? Um, she's going for the door. Oh. No, no she's going she's for not. a drink. You were right. <laughs> okay, so fuck me, sound design. Oh, God. Okay, um, so there's a few really key characteristics of the sound design of Can you guys wake me up every morning? Oh my God. I want Sherry. I love you. Okay. <laughs> up. Who's Sherry? Okay, okay. Here, I'm into it. I'm into it. Got it. Got it. Got it. Power. Energy. Sound go. Design. Let's go. Okay. Um, howling wind. Terrifying winter noise. Uh, it's cold. It's fucking awful. And dear God, is it evocative of a Canadian winter? Secondly, the dissonant chords that occur throughout the film. There's like these strident chords that happen. I was very lucky to see this film um, uh, in theaters at TIFF in those salad days of December 2019. Um, and I got to see it, I believe it was in TIFF Cinema One, which is truly one of the best cinema-going experiences I think you can have in the city for the sound design and everything. Anyway, those blasting dissonant chords, those really hit me that time. And they're so evocative of Peter smashing uh, the piano, of 
that male rage which kind of permeates the entire film. And then the other thing that fascinates me about this film is the screams that are covered up with other sounds of like the season. So you've got Claire, um, you know, in the early scenes as she's, you know, being, you know, fancy girl dry cleaning, all right. Um, <laughs> But as she's being suffocated, it's cut to uh, Mrs. Mack opening her nightgown present, and then ooh, and then you've got uh, okay, uh, and then you've got uh, when the uh, teen's body is found in the park, the mother's scream cutting into a phone call and that ringing sound, and then you've got Barb's death, which is covered with the sound of kids' choral singing. Let me tell you, kids show up at my door singing Christmas carols. I'm calling the police. <laughs> I don't want it. I didn't ask for it. What are you distracting me from? <laughs> anyway, I think, I think the kind of purpose of all of this really cool sound design, which is really cool and it's hard to do, um, is that this violence is overlapping, that it is ever present, that the second you're like, oh, this one thing is happening, another thing is like, oh, and then this, and then this, and these fucking kids show up at your doorstep and you're supposed to pay them? <laughs> anyway, sound design's great, I love it. At this point, I feel like we could easily descend into just like singing the praise of this film, what we love about this film. I think we're done. Well, I wanted to talk a bit about like Black Christmas is a Halloween, or Black Christmas is a Christmas story. Let's talk about oh, that. Oh yeah, that was so good, do that. <laughs> well, I don't know. No, no, it's really know. good. I don't know, guys. Everybody listen up. Yeah. Come on, come on. All right, I'll do it. Okay, um, so I had some really weird thoughts. My cats were not totally on board with this, but anyway, we're gonna go with this. So, um, according to Google, um, I looked up uh, what is the most important Christmas story, and the important, most important Christmas story is the nativity, which I kind of knew, and then I was like, you Google. You had to Google that to figure yeah, that and out. <laughs> Listen, I wasn't raised in your goddamn cult, you fucking Christian. Um, <laughs> And then I had to Google, what does the nativity mean? And Google told me that nativity, that the nativity scene, story, whatever it is, is about the love of God for humanity because he gave Jesus Christ to us on that day. And so when I think about Black Christmas in contrast with the nativity, and it's about a child being born, this is actively about a child not fucking being born. <laughs> Wasn't a Unborn. joke? Unborn. But okay, great, let's go with it. Um, and that this was like a, a sense of like, no, actually, I'm not gonna have this fucking baby. I'm not gonna do this because you, someone tells me to. I'm not gonna be party to this. And then in the end, and like that final shot, and this might be a real fucking reach, my friends, but that final shot where it ends and like we realize and we understand that Claire and Mrs. Mack are still undiscovered bodies in the attic, and there's that really long, beautiful, like slow pullout, and Claire's body is kind of again the original wrapped in plastic girl. Thank you, um, you know, um, and uh, and we have you know Claire in the kind of backlight, and it just pulls out, and I'm like, God, she's the dead angel at the cr 
top of a Christmas tree. Just illuminated from that perfect behind in thing. like this glowing, throbbing and thing. It just, yeah. And it just constantly like pulls out and no one's paying attention to her. And it just read to me as like all of these traditions, all of these things we have inherited from Christian and pagan entities, we keep doing them. And we keep doing them for a reason. We keep doing them because we think it's community and it's family. And I think at the best of times, that's what it is. That I, I, I do love the holidays and I love this because we all get together and we try to do stuff together. And I think that's amazing. But why do we repeat them? Why do we always fucking repeat them when if you're looking at this dead girl in the attic and there's a fucking bunch of cops around and we have no idea she's up there and she's died alone and she's still dead alone and it is so fucking chilling and um yeah what's chilling to me is at the end of the film the police think they've cracked the case that's what's chilling is 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 our knowledge that they're nowhere near that there's undiscovered bodies that the killer is still in the motherfucking house and they think that, ah, case closed. We can go home to our families and open our gifts and drink our eggnog. That's and they do. They do. Eventually, the smell would get to them. <laughs> it's a great ending. It's a, it's a, it's a, like, look, it's <laughs> fine holiday fun. It instills dread to this day. And that, to me, is a very effective film. So can we give it up? For black fucking person. Now then, both of these films that we have discussed have seen a glut of sequels, prequels, reboots, terms I don't know and can't pronounce because I'm too drunk. We're going to discuss a handful of them that we have prepared. Yeah, refill my little nippy sherry thing. <laughs> we're going to we're going to touch on them real quick. Okay, we're wrapping this up. We're wrapping we're this up. We're wrapping this up. I swear to God. <laughs> Halloween. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about remake exhaustion. Is it a thing? Like let's talk about how uh, when remakes come out, people will be like, you'll still have the original. The original isn't going anywhere, but I can't deny that when I go back to the original and I try to discuss it, it's like, yeah, martyrs, oh, which one? What? What? <laughs> I need to specify which martyrs is worth fucking talking about? Listen, it's, it's an age of content. <laughs> Remake exhaustion is a thing, and I, I think that was really crystallized in my in my rewatch of Halloween in, in how pure Wait, it which, was. Which Halloween? <laughs> ah! Because now that's the thing, is you just name it the original thing and you don't fucking acknowledge it because it's and super there are fucking three. There are three movies with the title of Halloween. That's too, too many. Yeah. Stop it. There should be one with a Z. There should be one with an eight in it somehow. <laughs> I don't know. So uh, both these films not only set forth this slasher subgenre, but they had some other parallels. Yes. Yeah, so um, obviously, dimension films 
I mean, obviously, what am I saying? Dimension Films picks up the fucking rights to it and created one of the greatest films ever made, Halloween Curse of Michael Myers, <laughs> starring one Paul Stephen Rudd. And um, anyway, they carried that over after the success of Scream into Halloween H2O in 98, Best Laurie Strode movie, I'm just saying. Uh, Resurrection in 2002. Uh, but then we get into a really interesting parallel we, where we have Rob Zombie's Halloween in uh, 2007 and then Halloween 2, 2009, which really explore the backstory of Michael Myers and like, oh, look at this thing. And my wife is a stripper and also Michael Myers' mom's dirty. And there's also a white horse, which I think is symbolic of things, but not heroin. Anyway. Um, and it goes on and on, but then at the same, and so those were released by Dimension. The same time, well, close to the same time, in 2006, Black Xmas is also released by Dimension Films, the Weinsteins, our favorite villains of the uh, filming. Boo, hiss, Shan, yes! The anger feeds us. Um, but they're two very like intentionally of that era, like ugly fucking films. No, they are. No, like intentionally, they are like disgusting, ugly films. Uh, I'm sorry, does someone want to disagree with me? <laughs> exactly. Um, and, then, and then we have in uh, Black Xmas, uh, sorry, Black Christmas from 2019, and then the Dave and Gordon Green trilogy. <laughs> in 2018 to this year, a year of our... Billy and Agnes, 2022, um, Halloween trilogy that are both released by Blumhouse. And it's almost as if, it's like whenever the IPs like come up for grabs, people will grab them. It's not like, ooh, we have this passionate project with this passionate filmmaker. It's like, no, you were about to lose the rights. What is cheap to make? Oh, it's horror films? Let's go make more of them. It is such a cash grab. It is, a, And we know people who worked on them, and they're passionate about horror films, and they love them, and I want to believe in what they do. But dear God, Michael... Michael Myers, supernaturally, I fucking a boy in a sewer is not something I had on my bingo card for this year. It is. It is a lot. I, okay, I'm sorry. Back to watching. I can't handle it. I think the parallels. They got paid. They got paid cash money, more than any of us collectively in this room will ever make. <laughs> to be like, you know what? Michael Myers, green eyes, swirls, fucks this kid, and then it's powers or trans, oh my god! <laughs> but Kyle Richards is not it, yeah. so it's great. You're not getting another minute. <laughs> I think the observation that the first round of remakes occurred around the same same time span and from the same studio and then the second round did kind of the same thing is really fascinating and I think I, I, I think we should kind of go through with some broad strokes observations everyone's exhausted with these franchises just like we I'm are I'm exhausted from the so sherry <laughs> the sherry is keeping me alive at this point but uh, but <laughs> let's go through them real quick um, going through them Oh God! Okay. I, well, I, yeah. No, no, just, go, 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 go. Just no, broad I'm, I'm strokes. Here. I'm here for just you. I'm broad here for strokes. You. Yes. Rob Zombie's 2007 remake of Halloween. All right. Begs the question: 
Is Halloween Why? fundamentally about a group of girls being terrorized by a maniac? Or a boy done wrong in life who exacts revenge Andrew, Andrew, on Andrew, I just want to stop you. Boys are people too. <laughs> I'm going to stop the Well, that the answers emails. that question. Listen, I see some men in this crowd. They're getting uneasy. Look. <laughs> sequels, Women are having a great time. The point of a sequel is to expand on the universe of the original, to expand upon the menace of the original. And in that case, it was a question of giving Michael some backstory and understanding some of his rage. And insofar as I am personally unimpressed by the diagnosis of pure unadulterated evil, Neither am I particularly moved by mama was a stripper. <laughs> I love it because it just, <laughs> that just sounded like Forrest Gump. <laughs> I don't have a theater degree, okay? Give me a fucking break. Listen, we can't all. <laughs> Anything to say about Rob Zombie's Halloween? I have hairspray in my it, what else would you like to talk about? I would like to talk about Black Christmas 2006, which I saw for the first Ugh. time the other Who night. Who here has seen it? Who has seen the jaundice cut? Why does he have jaundice? He looks like a goddamn X-Men mutant. Why did they try to make him a Marvel villain? That's exactly what I It said. is bananas. He's the color of a banana. <laughs> but why? Jaundice is a major plot point of this film. Listen, I'm deep into a rewatch of ER right now. And yes, and uh, literally kids come in with jaundice and they're like, oh, he has a slight yellow tinge to him. Times that by 25 and you've got Billy in Black Xmas 2006. I don't understand why they made him yellow. I don't get it. Anyway, listen. Written, directed by Glenn Morgan, uh, disputes with the Weinsteins over the tone and ending, resulting in lots of rewrites and well, reshoots. To be fair, the Weinsteins had a lot of disputes about their behavior at the time. The original ending apparently had a phone call from Billy as like a callback from the original film, but the Weinsteins ending showed him being impaled, and that's what wound up happening. Uh, a couple of highlights from my notes. They got Miss Mac lingerie. Yes, they got Andrea Martin's sexy lingerie in that sexy one. Sexy lingerie, oh, as opposed to the original Black Christmas where they got her like a really hideous nightgown as a joke. Honestly, that nightgown looked fucking comfy. <laughs> I would award the shit out a of that. Hilarious nightgown is a funny joke. Lingerie's fucking creepy. Yeah. Um, Don't do it. Wish Adina Menzel. Nobody gets that one? Okay. Oh, wait, wait, who is it? Who is Wishing Dina Menzel? There was a character who came in who was like, Oh, the oh, sister? I'm the, the sister. Oh, she's someone, though. Wish Dina Menzel? No, she wasn't a Dina Menzel. She was, uh, <laughs> she was someone who looked like someone else. Anyway, she came in and she was like, oh, I'm a sister. Finally. Anyway. Give me your what the fuck does the, a unicorn have to do with the Bible? Well, it, wasn't it a callback to Barb's death from the original? Yes. Again, having nothing to do with the fucking Bible. <laughs> I don't claim to be intimately... She's the lapse one. I'm just here. 
I got you a unicorn because I know you like the vibe. Sorry, I can't. And like, <laughs> it's the faculty of horror. Like I'm looking for things to glom onto to dig deeper and like so many what the fuck moments. Those are just a couple of highlights. Anything to say about Black Christmas 2006? No, I've said it all. Well, then let's move on Billy forward. Billy is the cover, color of piss. <laughs> when you haven't had it water for a he day. He is the color of piss. He is the... Like that day when you're like, ooh, I should have drank more water. Oh, yeah. He's that color. Insightful. Uh, Halloween 2018. Do you want to, like, now's your chance. Well, listen, podcaster friend, as I uh, think about Halloween 2018, I wish I'd had a fucking lobotomy before I watched it. That's, that's it? That's it. I have to say that, that when movie. I saw Halloween 2018, I saw it at Midnight Madness when it premiered with Jamie Lee Curtis in I attendance. was in the other screening, okay? Okay. I was in the one with Jamie Lee Curtis. Yeah, she Sorry. was at mine. Listen, Jamie Lee Curtis was an executive producer on that. She was showing up to, were you at a Cineplex? She was probably there. No, was it special for you? No, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to Not take it away from you. Ryan Turek was there. He's our friend. We he love Ryan so Turek. so excited. And I got, I, I got a bit swept up in the frenzy. I got, I got a bit swept up in Film the idea. Film Festival fever, it's real. It's, it is real. And I was the one who reviewed it for Roomwork Magazine. Out. And I was like, you know what? It, it, it delivers what fans want. Fans who loved X about the original expected X in this, and that's what they got. And that's what I said, and that position became increasingly indefensible as the rest of the trilogy played out, <laughs> to the point where now it's actually more embarrassing than the cheese and crackers thing. <laughs> anyway, I, I've, I've jotted down a couple of, a, a couple of, quotes that I'd like to bring up from that film. Oh, a dramatic reading, I love this, okay. Uh, just a couple. Okay. I'm a doctor, lock your doors. <laughs> she needs cognitive behavioral therapy. <laughs> and finally, and my favorite, I got peanut butter on my penis. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Halloween 2018. Listen, it's hard to make a movie. Some people here have made movies, congratulations. You've achieved the same thing as David Gordon Green talking about peanut butter on a penis. Um, but you've probably done it better. On a penis? It made no sense. Okay, Black Christmas 2019. I, I feel like you're a bigger fan of it than I am. I am, but I want you to start because reasons. Listen, there is a whole fucking sequence in that film with a diva cup. If Elaborate. you follow me on Instagram, you Describe know Describe it. Listen, a girl at the back just fucking point. Yes, I see you. I see you. Listen, maybe this is oversharing. I'm doing it right now and it's in me and I could never do that in front of Andrea. Okay? Never would I accept a diva cup from someone else, nor would I pull down 
my pants enough, so it's not enough that like the camera is upset at me, that I would shove it in myself. I wouldn't do that. Like I've never, what is, <sighs> and this was written and directed by women, and we have heard that like there's a lot of duress and pressure and to make it happen, and it was announced in July, it came out that December, unheard of timeline to make a film happen, and like, was this B unit? Was this the dude bro B unit that shot that? I, oh God. Uh. Okay, you need to take over, I can't anymore. Are you done? I can't. I have a theory, uh. it could be bunnies. <laughs> I thought there might be a handful of you who got that. <laughs> theory about the diva cup scene and this theory takes me back to do you guys remember the pet cemetery remake yes i was on a set visit for it courtesy of room org the pet cemetery so remake weirder. had a sense of humor that i didn't get until two-thirds of the way in when something happened and my boyfriend laughed and I was like, huh? Oh shit, is this supposed to be funny? And then the two of us laughed our asses off until yes. the end of it and we got it. And so when I look back on the 2019 Black Christmas, I truly feel like these were a couple of filmmakers who were like, okay, we're gonna take this text and we're gonna take what we love about it and we're gonna pull it into a new generation, and we're gonna, you know, like we're gonna take the, the, the prevalence of sexual assault in campus, we're gonna take the activism of, of sorority groups, and like, we're gonna take all that and drag it, and like, insofar as I was not on board with the bleeding statues and this and this and that, I feel like the diva cup gag, what? Listen. Okay. I'm gonna start over. No! <laughs> Once upon a time, as a feminist horror critic, I felt like male horror fans were very scared. And they were like, the feminists are coming. And they were like, the feminists are gonna cover up all the boobies. And the feminists are gonna cover up all the gore. And the feminists are gonna put doilies everywhere and the feminists are gonna take their tampons and string them up from the ceiling and everything's gonna be all fucked up. I actually feel like the 2019 Black Christmas is poking fun at that with that diva cup scene, but the joke comes too early in the film for us to get it, for us to get what that film is trying to say with it. I think it's a gag and I think if it had happened later in the film, I'd be like, okay. But because it happened when it like did, Like when they were, were killing the men and one of them was like, oh, I need a diva cup. That would have been the good time for it. You need to know when a film is being silly, when it's being funny, yes, when it's I being agree. subversive, and when it's being acerbic. I agree. And I found that scene shocking. But now, in retrospect, having seen the rest of it, I kind of get it and I kind of love it. Okay. Love it, no, no, applaud, applaud.
Okay, we are wrapping up. Listen, hey, don't say yes to us wrapping up. <laughs> They're tired. They want to drink. They want to smoke. I want to smoke. No, listen, we are here. It has been our 10 years. This is like one of those weird weddings we have to go to. Oh, my God. You have to pay attention to us. You're right. I have more notes on 10 years. Okay, so listen. I was like, okay, let's allow some time at the end. I swear to God, all our staff, our lovely, lovely staff, uh, we're wrapping up. But I was like, oh, yeah, we should leave some time to talk about 10 years. I have no notes about 10 years. Really? Andrea, me, I, like, I was like, no, it's going to come to me in the moment. And when I started to think about it, I started to cry. And anyway. All right. So well, anyway, let's see who cries first. I am just drunk enough to get really gushy about 10 years of faculty of horror. Um, Maybe to start, I'd like to just kind of set the stage. It, it, it's hard to think back to 2012. It, it, it's hard to think back to two years ago. Like, everything has changed so much, and our adjustment to that change has been really uh, necessary and and awkward and, and difficult and challenging. But 10 years ago, we were pre-serial. Um, Podcasting has blown up since Serial, but we were starting out before there were a million podcast platforms out there um, offering to do your compression for you, offering to make an RSS feed for you. We really, um, we learned that as we went. I uh, remember um, when we started this podcast and I was telling friends, friends who are in this room tonight, that uh, we were doing a podcast and they were like, I don't know how to listen to one of those. <laughs> And then um, from people who were kind of within our circle at that time being like, oh, oh, a podcast. Oh, you're doing something. You should get sexy photos of yourselves. <laughs> no, seriously. And, and it was like, oh, I, I wanted to start a podcast because people didn't know how I looked. And that felt so much more safe to me than anything else. And now, and now we're here and we're live and we're in front of you. And, you know, if you look at the about huge page. facial reconstructive surgery. <laughs> But you know what we look if like. If you look at the about page of the Faculty of Horror, it's still a photo of us yeah. with masks on. And that was that was part of us being like, you don't know what we look like. Listen to us. Yeah. Listen to us instead. Judge our podcast on the basis of what you're hearing instead of what you're seeing. And, you know, I that was pretty fucking profound in retrospect. Maybe the day of we just had a zit or I didn't like my eye makeup that day, but... But in the end, uh, I, I think it, it, it's pretty defining, and um, it only became more so. Uh, and I also wanted to remark upon the, the, the nature of social media. I remember when we did that episode on Jennifer's body. Oh. It felt like we were cracking a nut wide open. Like, why isn't anyone talking about this film in this way? And now everybody's talking about this film in this way. And, like, I'm not trying to take credit. I'm not trying to say that, like, we started it and now everyone is. But, like, the nature of discourse online is like, da 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 But mm. when we started this episode, it was a lot slower. And there was a lot less space for people like Alex and I to get, to get our opinions out there and to have it be heard. Yeah, and I think, oh, oh, yes. <laughs> When, when we started this podcast, it was because we were part of a community where it felt like we were being pushed to the side, and we weren't allowed to be part of that community unless we were someone's girlfriend. And being a gr someone's girlfriend is great. It's cool. Rock on. But 
No, really. And uh, But we were like, no, we have more things to say, and we don't like any of these dudes, and we don't want to do that. And so we, we kind of took that tact of building our own table. And I am so grateful, and I am so pleased, and I am so moved that everyone here and everyone listening is part of this table. And now we've got a big fucking table full of people who are willing to listen and learn and be wrong and grow and change and like just every single month. It's like the reactions, the, the discourse we have amongst each other is so moving and so powerful. It is like the most heartwarming thing I can think of. And the fact that everyone is here tonight and that we are all making different changes together. And if you think about like what, you know, the killer in Black Christmas is doing and what Michael Myers is doing, it's that conservatism. It's oppressing us. And whenever we get more progressive, it's going to tamp down on us. And we have to hold the fucking line. And we have to push forward and be stronger. And it sucks. It sucks that we have to do that. But we can do it together. And that is what is fucking exciting to me, is that we are in this room, and I see heads nodding. I see people reacting. And I know we are all out there in our communities making a difference in all of the different ways that touch our lives. And that, through talking about horror films, through talking about the things that scare us, through, I just wanted to be Andrea's friend. <laughs> That's it. She's, she's still one of the coolest people I've ever met. You're one of the coolest, I'm gonna fucking cry. <laughs> this has been the best and biggest educational experience I have ever had. No crying. I fucking love you. I fucking love you. Happy 10 years, baby. <laughs> Don't any of you move. We need to take a selfie. Yes, we, have, we always take a selfie. So everyone... Come to the middle. We're all very cool. Up, we're standing up. This isn't a fucking joke. Listen, one time, another podcast said we faked this photo. Oh, shit. And that we that's true. No, I'm not even joking. They said we faked this at Salem Horror Fest. We didn't fucking fake it. Look at us. Look at us. All of us here. Okay. Andrea has the better phone, and she's. You bear richer. witness that you were not here, and we did not doctor this photo to look like we brought out a. What a fucking dick. Are you ready? Are you in there? Turn it. We're done. Happy 10th anniversary, faculty of art. Thank you. Merry Christmas. Happy holidays. Thank you so much for coming. Murder your boyfriends. Next time, we're back with our uh, 2022 A-cab. year review. Fuck the patriarchy. Office hours are closed. Have a good night. Get home safe. Thank you.